Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. When I introduce you guys this time, instead of, hello, just a little bit enthusiasm if we can, if we can do that. Since the start of the pandemic, my team and I have participated in over 450 meetings, conference calls, client events, conferences, and media interviews. In those, we have made forecasts, shifted our asset allocation weightings, modeled economic data, and answered thousands of questions. And what we've found is that there are a handful of common questions that tend to come up more than others. So, in this episode, we continue from where we left off in episode 38. Because you asked, listen on, this is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. Joining me again today are my colleagues, co-hosts, might as well call them co-hosts, Kevin Hedlund and Mark Neal. Thanks for joining us uh, yet again, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. All right. So this is the continuation of the episode that we did a couple months ago, which was Because You Asked which really over the last number of months during the pandemic, during the market volatility, through the recovery, uh, and now past the election, we've been getting a number of questions from advisors and clients on our views on the economy, on the market, on where we're headed, on portfolio positioning. Uh, And so we thought it would be a great idea to gather these questions and kind of knock them off one at a time. Uh, we did this with the first part of the episode. We're picking this up a couple of months later to to really ask what is is most top of mind to to our clients um, and our listeners out there. So, gentlemen, why don't we start with this one? From the economic perspective, how much more stimulus can we have? Government debt levels seemingly are at very, very high levels. Makan, do you want to start us off? I feel like I, we get this question every time we do a presentation. And I feel that as long as I've been in the investment uh, in investment business or my, my investment career, I've been receiving this question every year. And that's been in 10 plus years. And if you took it, and generally when this question is being asked, it's by someone that is very nervous about it. So they are looking at the investment implications and maybe a little bit hesitant to invest in equities because of that. And if, if that was the case over the last 10 years, you missed out on one of the longest bull market in history. Now, I take the flip side of it and I say, okay, well, let's assume that there is something to be worried about. So yes, debt levels are increasing. Well, what part of your asset allocation is that most likely to impact? From the equity side, uh, and especially if you're investing in our solutions, I would say government debt levels probably have very little impact on the bottom-up companies that we invest in. However, on the sovereign bond side, you're probably a little bit more exposed. So I guess the reasoning would go is high debt levels, you're going to have to 
pay a higher interest rate for people wanting to buy or to invest in your sovereign bonds. So if that is the case and you're worried about it, you got to look at your asset allocation and see what part of that asset allocation is the most vulnerable. And that would be on the sovereign side, not on the credit side, not on the high yield side. So I take that view. And again, when I look at the solutions that we offer here at Manulife, we have very immaterial, or not immaterial amounts, but small exposure to those sovereign bonds that may, may even if it were to be, be a case, be impacted by it. What is the number one question we ask ourselves each day when we look at the markets? How do we make money from it? How do we make money? Exactly. How do we make money or how do we protect ourselves from losing money? So when this question comes into me, it's like, well, you know, all this government debt, what are we going to do? It's like, well, we need to understand what are the consequences of that debt. The worst case scenario is the government can't pay that debt back, which means they're going to default out of that debt, which means rates on existing debt is going to shoot up right? because the debt is is going to lose value. Perhaps you see a devaluation of currencies. Now, this is all worst case scenario. Now, we've seen this in, in some countries. If you look at Zimbabwe, if you look at you know, Venezuela, if you look at Argentina that has defaulted on its debt, Russia that's defaulted on its debt, right? So these are worst case scenarios. Really, to see that happen in Canada and the United States, I think the debt levels have to get a lot higher than that. But more importantly, it's like, okay, so what do you do with that information? Well, if we play that end game out and we see interest rates go up. So to your point, Mark, on you know, the value of those bonds fall. If the country pays back that debt by printing money, then the, those new dollars are worth a heck of a lot less than the old dollars were. So it, it effectively becomes a transfer of wealth or a tax on anyone that was holding that currency before. Um, so you need to protect yourself. How do we protect ourselves from that? It's like, well, one, don't own that. Two, own assets that hold on to their purchasing power uh, or hold on to, to that wealth. Real assets, you know, real estate falls in that, in that picture, um, but commodities fall into that. And I would say stocks fall into that as well. Companies that have pricing power, that have you know, a, a good market that can generate profits, that can raise their prices in the face of rising inflation, are a way that we can protect ourselves. So, you know, coming back to that question saying, look, I don't know what the outcome is, but if it is the worst case scenario, then the best thing that we can do is own stocks and own real assets that will thrive or continue to thrive in that kind of environment. Yeah, when I look at it and I get a, you know, Mark, I think you're, you're, you got it right there. We've had this question for, you know, as long as I've been in the investment industry, 20 years or so, and everyone's worried about this, this, doomsday right when when the the sovereign countries you know the developed countries essentially blow up because of the debt levels and they've been able to continue to increase that debt and and philip i think you're right when if you're worried about something identify where the risks lie are they to the upside or to the downside and if there if there is a risk in either side right now to a debt level it's exactly that that yields go up and how do you protect in a rising yield environment? You shorten your duration of fixed income, you embrace credit, and you embrace equities and other assets. And that it's, it's as simple as that. And it's not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, um, but the likelihood of the, of the trend is in that direction as higher debt should demand higher yield from those uh, market participants that are providing the liquidity to the governments that are borrowing money. Yeah, in short, you know, I, I don't think it, this, this might be a problem down the road, 
I think we can see some consequences to the amount of fiscal stimulus. I think we've talked about this on some other podcasts and that it could result in in a weaker US dollar, uh, perhaps a weaker Canadian dollar relative to purchasing power, higher interest rates. But this is all, you know, moderate, right? Moderate expectations. So when we say weaker US dollar, we mean by a couple percentage points. When we say higher interest rates, we mean by, you know, maybe half a percentage point. So nothing that we think is, is going to be extreme or shocking in this environment. So let's move on to the next question, which is, I think still along that, that debt or fixed income side, uh, and this is another one that we've received numerous times, and I think it's worth revisiting as well, is do we see negative rates in Canada or the US by their respective central banks in, in the near future? Um, and I'll start with this one. My view is no, I don't think we will. And, and I think the reason why is because where we've seen negative rates employed in other areas around the world, looking at Europe, looking at Sweden, looking at Japan, they haven't been effective in delivering upon what I think the central bank wanted, which is economic growth, right? A boost to economic growth um, and a boost to inflation. So I think it was an experiment. It's been, I think, largely a failed experiment. And I think we're going to move on from it. So that's, that's you know, it's, it's you say this, Kevin, you know, what's the definition of insanity? And it's doing the same thing over and over again and trying to, and expecting a different result. Yeah. I think that's the case with negative rates. So, you know, this is a nice short and sweet one, but my view is, no, I don't think we'll see that. I think central bankers have learned that it, it's not going to do what they want negative rates to do. Yeah, and the backbone of any productive economy is this financial system. And when you look at these banking sectors in these areas of the world that have gone through that negative rate experiment, if you look at the profitability of their banking sector, it's it's much worse than what we have here in Canada or the U.S. So I think they're very cognizant of that. And it's not even speculating that they that's their view. They've written papers on it. So they have come out and said it's the last thing they want to do because they know it ultimately puts their banking system in a more vulnerable position, whereas the whole point is to make the banking system less vulnerable. And Philip, we've discussed this before. It can actually be uh, deflationary as you know, borrowers wait for rates to go even lower. So perhaps if you want to stimulate inflation, maybe uh, threatening to raise rates might uh, um, cause borrowers to perhaps act, right? So the expectation that rates could go lower and that there is no real lower bound actually could be deflationary to the uh, to the economy rather than inflationary. Exactly. And this is one that the central banks haven't tried yet. But, you know, Kevin, we've talked about this in the past saying, well, if, if it is counterproductive to put negative rates in because as you said you know people actually become savers as opposed to spenders maybe if we told people that rates were going up that they would act faster and start spending their money buying homes and whatnot and in fact when when we saw that signal a few years ago by the fed that they were going to start to raise rates i remember mortgage applications in the united states actually shot up and it was better grab that rate now before it's gone so it's, it's almost like if you want people to spend money, tell them prices are going up. Don't tell them prices are going down. Okay, let's move on. Uh, this, this one is a good one. And this speaks to the whole concept of a K-shaped economic recovery. Now, you know, we've written about this. You, know, you guys know my view on it. Um, but this is in the context of how important is a services economic recovery. Now, let's talk about this because when we reference the US economy, 
when we reference the Canadian economy, we say that these economies are dominated by services. They are services-based economies. Now, immediately, some people would draw the conclusion to say, oh, well, then services must be important to stock markets. That's actually not the case. Now, in the context of a K-shaped recovery, what this means uh, is that in the past, economists like to attach a letter to the shape of the recovery. A V-shaped recovery means a sharp downturn and a sharp recovery. A W means a double bottom, right? So a sharp downturn, you recover and then downturn again, similar to what we saw in 80 and 82. This concept of the K-shaped recovery, in my mind, is laughable. But you know, just I'll just draw it out here. It's saying that parts of the economies of Canada and the United States are recovering strongly and parts are not. And therefore you get that K shape where you know one angle is upwards, the other one is downwards, um, and there you go. My argument and, and why I, I think this concept is interesting but a waste of time is because every economic recovery is going to be uneven. Every economic recovery, therefore, is going to be a K-shaped recovery. This one just happens to be the services side that's lagging, you know, the manufacturing side. Back in, in 08, 09, the recovery following the great financial crisis you know, was much stronger on the services side because you didn't see the financial collapse in services. Uh, services actually did very, very well. It was you know, the, the financials, it was the housing market, it was manufacturing that took a long time to get back to where we were. So yeah, how important is a services recovery? In our view, to what we do, not very. You know, guys, jump in here, help explain why this is the case. So maybe I'll try to tackle it is, I think it's important to, first thing is, when we invest in the S&P 500, we're not investing in the broad U.S. economy. Those are two very different things. Canada is another great example. The TSX is not a good makeup of the broader Canadian economy. Now, when it comes to investing in the S&P 500, uh, services are much less important than manufacturing. So manufacturing makes up roughly 10% of the broader U.S. economy, while good producing firms make up nearly half of the S&P 500 market cap and 40% of its revenue. So when we're investing in the S&P 500, we're investing primarily in manufacturing-based uh, businesses. And that's not even considering the derivatives of manufacturing. So Amazon might be considered services or McDonald's, but in the process or in what they sell, there's manufacturing involved. So when you actually look at why manufacturing is so important is since the 90s, there is a very, very strong relationship between S&P 500 aggregate revenues and total new factory orders. Like it's a one for one. So I think, yes, services are important for the broader U.S. economy, but we have to take our economist hat off and put our investment hats on and, and recognize that from an investment perspective, manufacturing is much more important for S&P 500 investments than services. It's, it comes back to the question we get all the time about, you know, Canadian economy over the years. Why is the Canadian economy doing well and perhaps the stock market not or vice versa? It's we really have to disassociate the economy with the stock market. You know, there's different pockets of companies that are related to the economy and how well or how poor it's doing. 
but overall, as Makan mentioned, the broad index is not. Um, and this goes to sh really prove in this environment why active management is so important because they can analyze the different companies and see where the opportunities or risks lie in those individual companies from perhaps a demand perspective or a sales perspective or a cash flow perspective. Um, and those perhaps are linked to uh, how well is the economy is doing. But there's other co uh, companies that are going to do well regardless of how well uh, Main Street is doing or the local restaurant or if there's uh, waiters, waitresses out of work, right? There's a much different environment between general economy and of course the general stock market. And look what COVID's done. It's kind of changed the definition for some of these companies. Like I look at example of Sobeys. Sobeys wouldn't one consider, it's, it's a grocery store, right? But because of COVID, now you see all these Vola trucks across Ontario and that's a service now. So even within the service, I hate when we aggregate, it's very similar to, and we were talking about this earlier, is when value versus growth. Like there's such archaic ways of looking at investing that it's all services are created equal as well. There's a lot of services that have done extremely well during the COVID uh, pandemic, whereas some of them, and we know what they are, restaurants, gyms, go through the list that haven't done well. So I think it's very important to uh, not put broad-based strokes or brushes on these uh, definitions. That's a really important point, Mark. And I think, you know, you see necessity is the mother of all invention. And this uh, COVID and lockdowns, has really had a you know a tectonic shift to, to perhaps the way companies do business and companies have had to adapt um, or or get left behind and you see you know uh, restaurants now with uh, spots in the parking lot for for uh, pickup and you have grocery stores more willing to deliver whereas before you only had one you know one or two delivery companies right so having to change the the methodology or the the type of business you are. Um, perhaps to add on these services um, is just now part of the business and you're getting definitely blurred lines between uh, perhaps you said growth or value but are perhaps even services and other sectors of the economy and the stock market. Well, I think, you, you know, you guys started to address the next question, which is, do we see a rotation from growth to value? We can argue that growth stocks have dominated the market uh, in this rally, while perhaps traditional value stocks have lagged. Now, I've often struggled with this because I sit there and say, well, what do you define as value and what do you define as growth, right? If you're just saying, look, we're gonna put a line in the sand here and all the companies that have growth rates above this are growth and growth rates below this are value, or valuation, all the companies that with a valuation below this and our value. And, you know, I, I think that that is a little too narrow a definition. In fact, I would say, you know, why even bother with that definition at all? I think what we should be focusing on is, you know, to, to what you said, look, find companies that can thrive in multiple environments um, and and focus on those companies that are... Pro now, there have been some companies that have been running up that aren't as profitable as others, that are great ideas, you know, gr but they're not profitable. We'll see ultimately what happens to those companies. Either you get profitable or you, you get lost, um, tends to be the case. But, you know, the, the value to growth, I think, look, if there are good companies that are generating earnings growth and you can get them at a reasonable price, pick them up. You know, I, I don't think that they, we can potentially see, you know, we know that there are some sectors that have lagged 
in the rally. Financials have lagged in the rally. I don't know if I would describe financials as value stocks. I just think that you know there's been some uh, sentiment headwinds on financials with the view that they could continue to underperform because of increased loan loss provisioning. Uh, as as um, companies have to you know, delay or default or, or fall delinquent on, on their debt payments, that's going to impede bank profitability. If, if interest rates are going to remain very, very low and the yield curve is going to be quite flat, that's going to impede bank profitability. But I, I don't necessarily would say that, oh, well, they're underperforming because they're value. We're starting to see that environment change. We're starting to see a steepening of the yield curve. And all of a sudden, guess what? There's renewed interest at the banks. There's renewed interest with the insurance companies because, oh, in this environment, they become more profitable. Hmm. You know, so ultimately, look, I think it comes down to profits. Profits matter. And where companies have a better uh, opportunity to generate profits, those are the ones that are going to be rewarded. And through the pandemic, they've been centered around technology. They've been centered around healthcare. They've been centered around um, materials where we see commodity prices move up. When the profitability of these other sectors starts to improve, guess what? I think you're going to start to see that rotation. So I think we need to get away from this value and growth, especially since we have two teams that we work with that I think historically would have been considered value. Um, but if you ask them, they go, well, we don't think of it that way. We continue to think about it as, as we want to buy companies that can you know, compound their returns. That's what we want. And that's what I want. This, this question uh, it drives me nuts and has driven me nuts for a long time. And it's, it's so simplistic to try and assign buckets. And this is such an, again, we're talking about many different answers to these questions is we need to shift the way we think about things in terms of investments. And this is just another one of those uh, shifts that need to be made. Uh, you know, it's it's about buying companies that are growing. We want them to grow their earnings. We don't want them to be uh, um, not growing. At the same time, we don't want to be overpaying for that growth either. It's it's that balance between companies that are growing and the price in which we pay. And that comes down to you know pricing methodology. But to just to simplistically assign, uh, you know, this company's value, this company's growth, why? And and it, and trying to um, break it down to those simplistic measures is just trying to get answers to a question that really doesn't need to be answering. And just, again, find the good companies, make sure that they're growing their profits, make sure they're growing their revenue, make sure they're growing their earnings, and don't overpay because you overpay, you're not going to earn. You know, and I think uh, um, one of our former colleagues uh, said that all the time, right? When you overpay, you under-earn. And this is, again, the exact same methodology. You want something growing, but you don't want to pay much for it. Let's let's shift the conversation then to ge geographic because you know sometimes this while I think the growth versus value is is hard to define I think geographically it's much easier to define. So the other question is, what do we think about the emerging markets right now? What do we think about the the prospects for emerging markets over the course of the next year to two years? Um, and I'll start just by saying, I like them. I think emerging <laughs> markets have done. Next question. <laughs> exactly. Boom. We're going to do this lightning round. We're going to get through these next 20 questions really fast. No, I think when you look at the emerging markets, in particular Asia, uh, which is 70% of the emerging market index, they've managed, the, the Asian economies have managed, or the governments have managed the pandemic very well, such that they're growing again. Not only have they recovered from the lockdowns earlier in the year, but China's growing, Taiwan is growing. Like they are ahead of where we are in North America and Europe uh, because I think of the way that they've managed it so well. Um, and then you factor in 
you know, the economic growth can lead to perhaps better earnings growth at a time when valuation also looks attractive. There's a lot to like with the emerging markets right now. Yeah, and I think I think investors generally that have this view towards Asia, and it's just human nature. It's a little bit of ignorance, right? And for anyone that has been to that part of the world, when you get off that airplane, you are just blown away by just the massive force from a top-down perspective of its growth. So one thing that's obviously working for it is it's it's home to basically 60% of the world's population. It generates 20% of uh, world's GDP growth, and that's up from just 10% in the 90s. It has a growing middle class. It's expanding rapidly. They're consuming more. Uh, they have structural advantages in terms of waterways and things of that nature, strong labor force. And obviously, the big thing that we always talk about in North America and Europe is declining demographic trends. Well, they're on the upswing. So there's a lot of positive things, I think, over our investment or horizons that benefit Asia. And I'll look at it from a bond perspective is when you look at, for example, EM bonds, which are the majority of them are the sovereign bonds are investment grade. So that's, I think, another thing that we think of, oh, in Asian or EM debt, especially typically Asian is it's below its junk. Well, it's not. It's investment grade. And when you look at the the share of the global market from a bond perspective, it was little less than 2% uh, entering the 90s. Today, it's 20%. Or 22%. And if you think, if you are on our side where you have all these massive, big scale things benefiting, it's only going to increase. And I asked the audiences, how much of your fixed income is 20%? Probably very few. So at the very least, just to get to the index level, I think we have to become much more comfortable in investing in that part of the world in these high quality, high growth uh, areas. Yeah, I think it's, it's a historical bias that... It- the lack of understanding that oh, EM or Asia is risky, you know, and I would say exactly like you said, Mark, on you know the growing uh, opportunity that exists in Asia. I think McKinsey did a study a few years ago that said uh, they believe that two thirds of the world's middle class will reside in the Asia Pacific region by 2030. You know, of course, and middle class is different for, to, for us than it is to in Asia, but it's purchasing power, right? And if you're in middle class in Asia and you're growing middle class, that's demand. Right? That's demand for products, that's demand for services, that's demand for goods. Um, and that really still makes the economy, still makes the companies. And I think that's, it's important to understand the opportunity there. And it's going to ebb and flow. You know, the, the markets are going to ebb and flow like developed markets do. Um, but it's important to understand the opportunity that's there. And I think we discussed this uh, on our, when we did our, our quarterly review of our, portfolio, our model portfolio. You know, we added 5% uh, to emerging markets uh, specifically. And we, I think we decided, and it makes sense, that in a, a well-diversified portfolio, a minimum 5% dedicated to emerging markets uh, makes sense from an equity perspective. It, it makes sense to have that at all times um, just to take advantage of the opportunities. I remember uh, probably 10 years ago, maybe a little over 10 years ago, Kevin and Mock, and you probably both remember this, the conversation around China was, well, yes, but what about all those ghost cities? Well, yes, what about the shadow banking? Well, yes, what about this? You know, and, and it was it was so misunderstood. I remember watching the 60 Minutes episode where they were walking down this this neighborhood in China of a newly developed um, area, I don't call it a suburb or, or area in China, and talking about, you know, look how empty it is. But what they didn't mention was, oh, but by the way, it's all been paid for. 
in cash. In cash. <laughs> exactly. In cash. And it was just like, it's empty. Yes, go back there now. And not only is that area full, but it's twice the size of what it was. So that's the one thing. It's it's a complete misunderstanding. And Makan, you and I traveled there, um, and the just the efficiency and the you know, how the energy uh, the yeah the energy how they can go ahead and, and build the way they do um, it's it's just phenomenal. And I think uh, so. Coming back to the, we took a short answer and made it longer. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the emerging markets at this point have a lot working in their favor um, that make them an attractive investment opportunity today. From a bond perspective is when you look at that part of the world in Asian investment grade credit, it's paying you roughly, I think this is as of September, two and a half, whereas US investment grade is paying you roughly two. So I'm getting more yield. And another thing, P, that you've talked about and we've talked about as a team is as we come out of this COVID coma, at the margin, uh, the economy is going to improve. Rates are going to uh, increase. And when you look at the duration, actually, of a- Asian investment grade, it's roughly five, whereas U.S. investment grade is roughly eight. So you're protected more in an environment, too, from holding uh, investment grade Asian credit as yields. Again, we're not saying they're going to increase materially, but even at the margin, if they go up 100 beeps, you're, it seems like you're much more protected from the Asian investment grade credit side. All right, last question, and this is this is a very important one that has been floated around in the press. Um, I've received this numerous times. I think you guys have as well. Is the 60-40 portfolio dead? Kevin, you and I have talked about it, and we've done some work on this. What are your thoughts with respect to the 60-40 portfolio, and is it dead, or is it is it just misunderstood? I'm going to sound like a broken record on this podcast because I keep saying we have to shift our mindset about how we invest. And this is just another concept that we have to change. We need fixed income in our portfolios. That's necessary. We have to, uh, um, especially as we get older and we have a shorter time frame for investments, we have to moderate the uh, fluctuations of our portfolio. And fixed income does do that. But in different opportunities, we have to adjust our fixed income. We have to adjust the opportunity set there. We have to change the sub-asset classes. It's not about just buying a long-dated you know, DEX or FTSE, Universe Bond Index, uh, long duration, and let it run. We have to adjust to the different opportunities. You know, I remember, again, back to when I started my career, we had, uh, you know, we weren't even investing in global equities. In Canada, you, it was hard to invest in global equities. And all of a sudden, the opportunity opened up and we saw what was available around us from an equity perspective. And I still find that investors are hesitant to take on that same opportunity in fixed income. You can embrace credit. You can embrace high yield investment grade credit, not only in the U.S. or Canada, but also around the world, um, as Mark alluded to in Asia. You can take sovereign bonds. There's such a big sandbox of playing in fixed income. So when I look at a 60-40 portfolio, essentially I say, no, it's not dead. It's just changed. And Kev, that sandbox in Asia is growing too, because when you look at the size of the Asian credit or sovereign, it's, it's crazy how much it's grown over the last 10 years and likely to grow. Going to continue to grow, and you have dim sum bond markets. You have, you know, as these uh, companies uh, start creating, and we know probably the fastest growth rate of, of companies is probably in that area. They need liquidity, right? How are they going to do liquidity? Uh, issue debt, and that's it's a new phenomenon, I think, for those companies and those marketplaces to issue debt um, to raise capital. 
and I think it's it's becoming more and more um, accepted uh, and and popular around the world. Well, let's let's bring it back to. I was just going to say, you know, we need to understand first why sixty forty, right? Why why the sixty forty portfolio? And historically, it's because sixty forty has delivered the optimal risk adjusted returns, meaning you're optimizing your return per unit of risk that you're you're taking on. That's been the historical thing. Now, does it mean that we should stay sixty forty forever? No, we, we have to shift to, to the opportunity set, but also that 40% fixed income is to mitigate the volatility of the 60% equity, right? If, we, if we're trying to balance the, the equity volatility out, then what you want to do is own you know, bonds, but I don't want to own bonds that are going to lose us money. I mean, that's, that's the worst diversification you could ever imagine. So are there other asset classes within fixed income that we can use? And you've mentioned a, whole, a few of them that we can use that still satisfies that need of reducing the volatility of my equity portfolio while delivering an income, delivering a positive return. And you know, today, based on our model portfolio, it's like, well, it might not be 60-40, maybe it's 65-35, or maybe it's 70-30. And by the way, that 30% fixed income isn't long duration US treasuries or government of Canada bonds because you know we're probably going to lose money in that environment it's going to in fact create more volatility than in fact you know reduce the volatility so maybe we should look at high yield maybe we should look at emerging market debt maybe we should look at you know some other alternatives out there and and not be so myopic to say it's got to be 60/40 that 40% has to be government bonds at all times otherwise it's not balanced let me ask you this question i think I think traditionally, as you entered retirement, if you were 60-40 or 70-30, you would kind of flip those, right? You would become a 30 equity, 70 fixed income. And I don't want to say that is dead, but I think as Canadians are basically going to be retired longer or spend more years in retirement than they did working and StatsCan came out and said, the odds of basically two, a couple making it to the age of 90 is 80%. It's really high. So I think as we enter as we enter retirement, that switching of flipping over the fixed income to equity uh, percentages, maybe that's dead. Maybe you keep going 60-40 or 70-30 with that equity. And as you mentioned, Philip, uh, having not your traditional fixed income, but uh, global bonds. And maybe, maybe that's a better question is, as we are in retirement, should we be 30% equity, 70% fixed income? Exactly. For for we did a study on on what should a retirement income be. Now, obviously, it depends on your capital. If you have if you're sitting on millions of dollars and you have low income needs, yes, you can be 100% bonds because your income needs are much lower than what your capital would suggest. But for the average Canadian, as soon as you start in this fixed income environment and where we think we're going to be over, say, the next 20 or 30 years, as soon as you start to reduce that equity weight and increase your fixed income weight, you're increasing your probability of shortfall because you cannot build a suitable retirement income with a 10-year Government of Canada bond that's paying you 70 basis points unless you think we are going not only negative yields but deeply negative yields. And that's just that's a prospect I don't think is going to happen. So in order to maintain your retirement income, you absolutely cannot flip it. That old adage of 100 minus your age and that's how much equity you should have. No, that is completely wrong. That doesn't work anymore. You know, actually, the work that, that um, I did said what your optimal asset allocation was pre-retirement 
should be your optimal should be your asset allocation in retirement. So if you were 60-40 going into retirement, you should stay 60-40. If you were 70-30, you should stay 70-30. Now, this all comes back to the asset allocation shouldn't be a static uh, outcome. It should be you know, a tactical outcome. It should it should shift, right, with the opportunity set. When we think that equities have a better probability of a positive outcome than fixed income, then you should shift. When we think the other way around, then you should shift back, as we've done in our model over the past number of years. So the way of thinking about 60-40, yes, that's probably dead, but diversification for an outcome of, of managing the volatility with equities while still maintaining your, your uh, goal of a certain, you know, to, to whatever that outcome is, income-oriented, uh, return-oriented, or whatever, yeah, diversification is still very, very important. Uh, let's let's leave it there. Um, I think we've covered a lot in this session. I think yeah. We, no U.S. election talk. Wow, shocking. No, no, no U.S. election talk. Not until it's it's all done. What a, I'll tell you what. Still, it's yet to be determined until we get a resolution. Exactly. I think what we need to do. May I may I just say one thing to that is who will, I think everyone knows what their view would have been in terms of market returns, given the environment that we currently find ourselves in, and it actually did not. Play, uh, pan out that way so again to our whole thing we've been harping on over the last two months is your political biases or emotions should not drive your investment decisions because politics is extremely fluid and extremely hard to predict and not necessarily always have the des- or expected outcome you would think that they would have on markets very well said you know very well said stick to the fundamentals stick to what matters over the long term Short day-to-day fluctuations are going to happen regardless. Um, I mean, how many times have we heard, oh, geopolitical risk is high, that can create volatility? Well, geopolitical risk is always high. There's always something going on. So, Can I end it off with one more thing? You get the last word. Last word is my daughter came home the other, last day actually, asking for a rat as a pet. And I asked her why, and she said that someone in her class has a rat as a pet. And I couldn't think of our last po- or two podcasts ago of Philip's recommendation. So I don't know why I brought that up, but I thought it was very funny. <laughs> you know, Makan, you won't. I don't think you'll regret it. They are a wonderful pet. Um, you know, again, I think, I, like I said on the last podcast, don't just go into your backyard and, and grab one. You know, find a breeder, a good breeder. And I think, uh, I think your daughter will love having a rat as a pet as they're wonderful social loving animals my, my wife put a bullet in that idea though so oh <laughs> that's too bad that's too bad that guy's a rational human being <laughs> i yeah it, it, you rethink that one rethink that one but anyway you know guys i want to thank you for this i think it was another really really good conversation um also want to reach out to those that are listening you know, if if you enjoy the podcast please rate us. It does help other like-minded individuals find us on uh, the various platforms. We do appreciate the feedback. We do appreciate the ratings. We appreciate you as listeners. Thank you for listening to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. 
Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.